intriguing kind of like position where our school, I'm from West Nebraska. Um, most people have never met my hello. Uh, and so I, I grew up in a school that was technically the largest class, class A uh, in Nebraska. And so it had all the things. It had all the sports, it had all the, uh, you know, arts, uh, all the, you know, for instance, it had every event that didn't, you know, uh, have to cut anything. In fact, we had to field everything. But we also were one of the smallest large class A schools uh, in my hometown. And so you could do everything. In fact, you kind of had to do everything. Like they would allow you to be on the football team and they would, during halftime, allow you to go out and march in the marching band. And then you could also like, you know, be, I don't know, the, the boosters or whatever. Like you could do all things at all times because they just needed bots, you know? Uh, they just needed to keep everything uh, fielded. And, and so in that environment, I just dove into it all. I, I accomplished all four letters of school experience, which I think was sports, academics, forensics, and maybe service? I don't even know. I don't even know the letters that I obtained because I was just into, if I can get it, I want it. I was uh, you know, president of the student body and also the student council. I was the governor of Boys State. I mean, I just threw myself into pursuing everything. And then I got to college. And I had the oh no moment. Because I realized everything that I did before was a risk. And it starts over now. And so I did what I did in high school. I got busy and started running after being the class vice president and being in a fraternity and being in an acapella group and being in the, of course, as a theater major and that was like its own world into itself and being cast earlier than any other freshman and always continually fighting to rack up a resume and a stack of an accomplishments. And since I hit sophomore year and I go complete 180, in fact, I quit almost everything. Uh, that which I, I'm not allowed to quit, I just, like start vaguely participating. I grow my hair out long. I grow my beard out long. I just kind of gotten this like something to this level of depression. And I started saying, I want to see how many people still like me if I'm an inconvenient friend to have. Because at this point, I had this sense that people only like and, and bring me around because who wouldn't want to be friends with somebody who's accomplished this better? There was lots of things that were going on in that time in my personal history, and maybe some of you have experiences like that, but here's one that I want to key in for our time in our series on Identity and Calling Day. I had no clue who I was. And that was not just a danger to myself, not just a what eventually caused me to completely break down in mental health wise, but ultimately, I didn't realize who I was created to be, how God had created me, specifically me, Kent Livingston, to image him in ways that he didn't create others to do. Ways that he created me to not image him, namely my weaknesses. And also areas where I am trying to be my own God, my sin patterns and my sin struggles. I was not aware of any of these things and so it's not like ignorance is bliss in this category of life. Because I was not aware of these things, I was owned by them. 
we started a series on living in your identity and calling, talking a couple weeks on your identity in Christ. If you did not hear those teachings or if you were not a part of those, I do recommend you go back and listen to those or do some work there. Identity in Christ is a prerequisite for today's teaching and the rest of what we'll be doing throughout the series. But we also opened up just talking about that this is not something that like we're just trying to glom on in like a pop psychology kind of way. Of saying like, oh, like the you know, like this the Bible really is, is God really concerned with my identity and calling, or is this just again like pop psychology? This is something as I read some of these quotes at the beginning of our series, the, the church has been a part of since the very beginning of its history. You get uh, Augustine in his confessions, he writes, How can you draw close to God when you are far from your own self? Or then he also writes at one point of prayer, Grant Lord that I may know myself and that I may know thee. Uh, you get uh, Maester Eckhart, a German theologian, who says no one can know God who does not first know himself. St. Teresa Babelia says almost all problems in spiritual life stem from lack of self-knowledge. John Calvin, in his Institutes, writes, our wisdom consists almost entirely of two parts, the knowledge of God and our, of ourselves, but these are connected together by many ties. It is not easy to determine which of the two proceeds and give birth to the other. And Thomas Merton says, for me to be a saint means to be myself. Therefore, the problem of sanctity and salvation is the problem of finding out who I am and discovering my true self. Now, what Merton or Calvin or Eckert and Augustine are all not saying is that ultimately the ultimate goal for all of us is to find out the unique butterfly part of ourselves and just open up our inner self. But rather, they are getting at this idea that I'm going to point out, there's literally throughout scripture, that we are created specifically as an individual to image God in a certain way, but because we are created to be not God himself, but to be a part of a body that images him, we are created also with weaknesses, which are a, the parts of the puzzle piece that are carved out for the body that we have to image God completely, because you can't do it by yourself. And then we're also, because Genesis 3 world uh, is where we live now. We are created with specific sin patterns. And so that's what they're getting at, this idea of, like, again, it's not just trying to, like, unlock your inner self. So there's, I guess, a portion of this in them. But ultimately, it's asking the question, who am I and how do I image God and live into my identity and my calling? Again, as I said, I want to point this out, and I think you actually see uh, this most uh, maybe clearly uh, throughout the Proverbs. Uh, you can flip around with me if you want. Uh, I actually have these pulled up and copied and pasted into my notes, and so I'm actually not going to be flipping around because you're not flipping. Or you can just hear them. Uh, starting with Proverbs 20, verse 5. Proverbs, of course, are the wisdom sayings of the scriptures uh, composed in, um, probably mostly from Solomon, however, composed in several other authors. Uh, and they're just this idea of trying to, uh, I heard them once described as like the hard candy of scripture, in which case, the more that you allow it to pass over your tongue, allow it to circle over in your mind, more flavors, more complexity comes out. I would actually like to apply that to the entirety of the scriptures as a whole. But it certainly is true of Proverbs. Proverbs 20, verse 5, it says this, 
The purposes of a person's heart are deep water, but one who has insight draws them out. This idea that you are a mystery to yourself. Think about it, nobody has misinterpreted you more. Nobody has failed you more. Nobody has let you down more than yourself. Because you are ultimately a mystery that you are still learning. And there's a fun side to this. In Ephesians, Ephesians 2 verse 10, Paul is writing about how that you have been made alive in Christ. And why? Because you have been, as he says in verse 10, for we are all God's handiwork. Or another uh, translation of that is opus or magnum opus. We are all God's great magnum opera work. And we are created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. He prepared these works for you specifically in Christ to do. Why? Because he's given you specific strengths, specific weaknesses, and specific identity and calling to live into in this world. And then he says later in, in chapter 4 in Ephesians, Paul's going to write about how that to the church he's given the teachers and the apostles and the prophets and the shepherds and, and the evangelists. And he says these are just some of the giftings that, that are given to equip the church, but then when the church is really built up and built together, then we are able to like grow into Christ as one mature body, working together, loving one another, serving one another, serving the community around us. Using all of the giftings we have, and if you just take like a compile, we did this in the spirit, uh, the the Holy Spirit series over the summer. If you want to just like talk about what our spiritual gifts, just scripturally speaking, I mean the list goes on and on in different places. I mean they will talk about administration being a spiritual gift. They will talk about almost like just the the spiritual gift of encouragement is regularly referred to in scripture. There are all sorts of ways that you have been designed, in any way that you have been designed, to find its fullness in the body of Christ, building the kingdom of God, as you are in Christ. You are a handiwork, you are a Zach and Vulcan. We, together, are his handiwork. We are his open. You can't do this on your own. But together with your skills, with your weaknesses, as we fight to experience our sin patterns, throwing into the forms of Christ together. We can set apart, or we can see the works that have been set apart for us before the beginning of time. But again, uh, we got to get to the idea that this is not an easy task. Proverbs 14, verse 8. The wisdom of the prudent is to give thought to their ways, but the folly of fools is deception. The wisdom of the prudent is to consider, why do I do the things that I do? Why do I have the triggers that I have? What hurt, what, what sin struggles? Why do I have the sin struggles? Why do I feel back these things? Because it says ultimately the foolish way to interact in this world is just to assume, ah, well, like you just don't think about it, you just go on, you don't become the student of yourself. And you don't learn what the clues to your life are showing you, namely your identity and calling who you are. Jeremiah 17, 19 gets at the point as well. The heart is deceitful above all things and beyond, uh, beyond cure. Who can understand? Again, as I said, you're ultimately a mystery to yourself. 
counseling, the entire industry, counseling and psych uh, psychologists and all of this industry is growing like gangbusters right now. And it's an entire industry to try to help you figure out who you are, why you do the things you do. Try to peel back the mystery of the reality that is. And ultimately, this is a difficult, but as Proverbs, uh, it's a difficult process, but as Proverbs says, for someone who is seeking to grow in wisdom through the scriptures, through in community that's being shaped by a Christ-likeness over time, by seeking to understand our family history, our family of origin, understand our sin struggles, as like you, you exist in this ecosystem, and as you exist in a community who exists in this ecosystem, and as you work together, over time, you can gain what the scripture regularly calls a heart of wisdom. One that understands reality and how you function. It doesn't fall in love with some version of itself that you wish you could be, but falls in love with reality. We're going to talk about this in a lot of different ways in, in January, including different limitations, different desires, all these ways that that you can get at this. But for my purposes this morning, I want to just introduce this concept of blessed wisdom of self-knowledge, self-understanding, self-awareness. Call it what you will. But the wise are on a lifelong trajectory to pursue after Couple um, caveats to it though. Self-awareness is not self-absorption. The goal of this is not to be like the what is it, the Greek myth, the person who just falls in love with the reflection of himself. Narcissus. Aha, thank you. Narcissus, of course, and why wouldn't it be? Because that's ultimately the narcissist in us all. And it is in us all. And so the goal of this is not to become a narcissist. In fact, again, in Ephesians 2.10, Paul's writing about, hey, when you are built up into the body, when you understand your giftings, when you understand how you've been created in Christ to image him, how you've been created to link up with others who you don't image him in that way, when you do that, you are going to primarily serve other people, build the kingdom, and reflect your God. It actually becomes not about you at all, though your gifts and your identity play a crucial role. But it's not self-absorbed. That's not the goal that we're after. Where how do we reflect our God? How do we serve the body around us? And how do we build the kingdom in this world? And in our world. Uh, ultimately, also, self-awareness is not self-flagellation. You can go the other route, where rather than uh, just becoming completely narcissistic, you instead become just like one where, like, the more you learn about your sin, the more you just realize that you just need to, like, I don't know, like, you know, either literally or metaphorically, just whip your back with, you know, the cat of nine tails to continually punish yourself. Ultimately, yes, there are ways to understand your sin, and there's ways to have godly grief that leads to repentance, but not worldly sorrow that just tips you on this nebulous cul-de-sac of guilt and shame that never actually just leads to repentance and then 
the joy that comes with forgiveness in Christ. The freedom that comes with being forgiven. And so this isn't just a goal to like just find out more and more of the horrible things that you are so that you can continually think of yourself lower and lower. C.S. Lewis writes, the thing about humility is not that you think of yourself as less than, it's that you think of yourself less. The more that you find out who you're made to be, what you're made to do, the less you actually stew inwardly, and the more that you take that knowledge and apply it outwardly. Also, let's define a couple terms. I've already been using some of them, uh, but just to make them abundantly clear. Uh, abund uh, defining these things, uh, your strengths, so ultimately the why behind these things is because, as I said, we're attempting to find what are your strengths, what are your weaknesses, and what are your sins. These last two are connected, but they are different. Uh, your strengths, openly as I've been saying, this is where you've been created to image God. The obligatory quote that we have to bring up in this moment every time is the Chariots of Fire quote, in which Eric Bell is talking about how when he runs, he feels God's smile. And you have something, and probably multiple things, about you that when you do it, if you think about it, if you haven't thought about it in those terms, but that is ultimately a description of your experience. I feel God's smile in this arena of life, in this area, whether you get paid for it or not. I feel God's smile when I am engaging you and building them up into Christ's image, encouraging them, building into them, arranging my life around them. I feel God's smile when I work in the medical field when I understand how to lead and walk people through confusing and difficult diagnoses. I feel God's smile when I administrate, when I take an event and I take all of the chaos and I sew it together to create a cohesive experience for people. And again, there's probably multiple of these for you, maybe in different ranges, maybe in different seasons of your life, you find ultimately new areas in which you feel smile about. But these are ultimately where you image your father in, on earth as it is in heaven. And sin and weakness, as I said, these are connected, uh, but they are different. Uh, they're a bit different. Sin are areas where you desire to be your own God, where you define what is best for me, what is how do I hold my life together? That ultimately, sin is, there's thousands of ways that theologians have conceived of it over time. All of them probably point out a different facet of the diamond, but for today's purposes, I'm going to use the definition of this is when you are trying to build your own you-sized kingdom, where you are sovereign and reigning over. And there are ways that you can make it, dress it up in spiritual clothes, or you can dress it up in humanistic clothes but it's the same result. If all of a sudden it's taken from you, you curse God, you curse the universe, you look around and you say, how can this be, how can a good God take this from me? Because ultimately it's revealing, no matter how altruistic it seemed or not at the beginning, that your main desire was to build the kingdom in which you could control, in which you were God of. Weaknesses. 
just uh, differently than that are areas where you were reminded that you image part of God, but you need to be a part of the body to image all of it. There is, thankfully now, I think a lot more conversations being had, not about continually strengthening your weaknesses, but living into your strengths and surrounding yourself with a body of people who complement you. You are not made to be on the top. And the American LinkedIn machine will constantly try to push you towards that sense that you should and can be able to do it all. And it is going to continually put more and more incentivization, but not just incentivization like more money and more benefits and all those things. It's also going to put pressure that everybody else is being more important and more valuable because they are doing it all. But of course, we all know the lie of social media is that we just show the times that we did it, and we don't show the times that we don't, to eventually erect an image that does not match up with our reality. You are weak. Learning your weaknesses is a blessing and a gift, because it allows you to depend on people and actually recognize that you are not God, and that only when we all are working together to grow into the fullness of Christ, do we get a chance And so, my sin ultimately is different than my weakness. I am a disorganized hot mess. My entire life, I basically just come together with enough organization to get through the day and then get to bed, and then I wake up and figure out just the bare minimum organization I need to get to that day. Amen. I try to fix that for years. I've not completely done trying to fix it, but also I am much more now in surrounding myself with people who know what they're doing administratively in my life. And not like they have to go walk around and administrate my life. I just need to like regularly say like, hey, here's a task. I'll take this task that's facet of it if you can take the administrative facet of it. Because if I try to remember everything, like every single thing, Sharon's not here today, if my wife were here, uh, we could have her testify to every time I've planned something, including our engagement, our wedding, whatever, it goes woefully wrong. And not like in a way uh, that's like, oh wow, that's a really sad story now that ends up like an unhinged fail, but in a way that has somewhat of a charm to it. It's just who I am, and it's just how I'm living, and I wish I could have everything go the way that I want it to and hold it in my mind, but I can't. That is my weakness. Now, my proclivity towards gluttonous and addictive behavior are ways that I am trying to control the amount of comfort or pleasure or ease or fun that I get at any given moment. It's an area where I am trying to be God. That I don't accept what he gives me in a given moment or a given day. But I say, no, I'm going to pursue through addictive type style status behavior. And again, some of this can be at times a strength, at times a weakness, and if I don't watch it and I'm not very careful at it, I can very easily find myself falling into the deep and destructive sin patterns. That's the reality. All of these things, your strengths, your weaknesses, and your sin patterns, 
often are all connected to the same coin. In fact, I'm just going to go ahead and make the absolute. They're, all, they're always connected to the same coin. Your strengths are intrinsically connected to your weaknesses. Your sin patterns are the side where you allow your strengths to try to become God. You try to use how you've been made to image God to muscle your way to become him. And so that's why I love this whole idea, like trying to continually shape and build my weaknesses. A lot of times if you do that, you end up like borrowing the energy that you have from your strengths to show up your weakness. Hey, guess what? Yes, I am a disorganized mess, but I can be spontaneous and in the moment really well. And so, yes, my wife could say, I just wish she would be more organized and be put together. But she's learned if she asks me to get into that, then she ultimately, I have to take it from my limited human beingness and taking it from my spontaneity, my in the moment, and my presence. And so she's recognized, I can try and I can work hard to be something that I'm not, or I can live into what I am and that she, who's much more administratively gifted than I am, can understand that she can take these areas of our life and I can take the areas where I stand in it in more spontaneous and present and in the moment. That's always one of the biggest things, one of the biggest uh, conversations in marital counseling, by the way, is that your spouse's strengths are connected to their weaknesses. So you can wish away their weaknesses, but you're also wishing away their strengths at the same time. And that you can be an insatiable human being by saying, I just want them to be omnicompetent and have all strengths and have no weaknesses. But you didn't get married to that, and you were not with that either. Free marital advice right there. Uh, it's probably good for, works for all relationships, I would say. So ultimately, your history, your experiences, your motivations, your hurts, your strengths, your desires, your dreams, your temptations, and much more than these are all pieces of evidence to you becoming aware of your gifts, your strengths, your weaknesses, and hopefully over time for your joy and freedom, being able to at least curb your sin, if not fully put it to death in your time here on earth. Or at least, again, putting yourself, not regularly putting yourself where you know you fall into sin, because you know where you are. The ways that we do this, there's probably several, but I've only got time for a few, and really I think it's the ones that we're gonna key in here. Uh, one, you need to have community. And not only community, you have to have deep, intrins- like enriched community that you have built in tons of time and trust in. Probably you don't have a ton of this community in your 20s or even 30s. It's something that you have to continually build towards. This is not a short game. I cannot give you any tips of how to do this well over the next six months. I can give you some things that you can start doing so that in six months you'll be six months further down the road, but this is a lifelong process. And so that's one of the reasons why I'm always trying to push on us the idea that maybe as Americans, the idea of us consistently switching community to community to community, yes, is gonna be a part of our culture because of technology, because of just the way that we are transient and the way that you have, like get fired, you gotta have a job and then move you here, that's going to happen. But then we add that to it because we just get the sense of like, well, but like if I just don't like something over here, I go over here, or it got awkward over here, so I go over here, or I just don't fully agree with this person here, so I'm gonna go over here, rather than embracing a level of relational distance. I don't have to love everything about you. I don't have to agree with everything about you.
about you, but we can be in a relationship for a long period of time. Yes, you might not magically click with every single person in your community, but yet I can still be a part of the body with them and love them as a brother and And I can say, as long as God doesn't move me with the clear, I need to now go get money somewhere else, or I need to go take care of a parent or someone over here, as long as he has me here, I'm rooted here. Come hell or high water, I'm in this community. Because you need to build up that level of trust with people over time, because we are a culture that does not want to make away by saying, hey, I think you're weak here. I think you're wrong. You will only do that with people that you trust deeply. And if someone does that to you, you will only accept it if you trust them deeply. You come up and tell me, just like randomly come and tell me what your weaknesses is. And I'm like, I'll, I'll accept it like really pastorally in the moment. And then I will like make fun of you the whole way home uh, to myself in my mind. Why? Because I'm a sinful person. And because we probably just don't have a level of trust. And so I can say, well, here's all the things that you think that is wrong about me. Again, I repent later, and I come back, and I realize that you were actually trying to love me and care for me. Uh, that's just me in the moment. And if I'm alone, then, well, whatever. Uh, that's me. But regardless, that's even an area that I know people who I trust and can press into my life will talk about the way that I don't can sometimes not take criticism well. And so I need people that I trust. I need people, you need people that you trust. You need people that you're building in. And yes, swallowing your pride even when sometimes somebody extends beyond their trust to say something. Or swallowing your pride to maybe extend past someone's trust to say something that doesn't need to be said. The only way that you get further in is by going in and both parties being, okay, maybe that wasn't optimal level of trust to step in and say that comment, but I'm going to go ahead and look over that because what they're saying is true. And I know they're doing it up as well. So, I'm not going to have time to go over So, yeah, we need to openly create safe places out of permanence. Um, a, a group of people that we trust both to tell us what's wrong and also to reaffirm us. Uh, I'm just going to go really briefly over these and then we're going to revisit. Also, unique history, and then this specifically, family history is crucial in this area. Your parents, grandparents, great grandparents, possibly a generation two beyond that, if you go back and just look at family patterns or to really like get in and study these things, you will find you are not as much of a unique individual as you thought. You are a product of families and generations and decisions and places where you grew up and environments. And so a wise person is going to not just try to reject or try to never become their father, but recognize that the more you try to not do that, the more you find yourself going to the back door and becoming your parents or your grandparents. Or you become a reaction from them that just like you don't know why you do what you do, you just do it as a reactive, I won't become that. Either way, it's completely unhealthy and will not ultimately be folded into your identity at all. And so, you, uh, there is more that I could be, uh, be said here, but ultimately, into your family history, taking it seriously, giving grace to your family the more that you learn about them. That you recognize that they too, just like you, 
or just the person trying to figure it out. And they had to do the hard work of trying to be a part of bringing you into this world and discipling you. And then as you try to bring in other children, whether they're your own or just other people you're bringing along, you realize it's actually really hard. It gives you more grace than over time. Personal history, major memories, major hurts, suffering, who you are in suffering. Oh man, I wish I could say more about that. Don't have time. Strongholds and temptations. I talked about this a couple weeks ago. Uh, there's a person, uh, a counselor that works with uh, men with sexual sin, and now I'm more aware that we have kids in the room, and I will only say that. Uh, and uh, they worked with uh, men with sexual sin, and he regularly said, you're confessing too soon. You're confessing the behavior without pressing in deeper into why is that behavior what I'm running to to avoid what emotion to try to cover up what experience to try to control so that I don't have to think about what rather than just confessing the action, how do I continue to peel back why is that sin pattern? Well, and then lastly, tools. There's going to be things like personality profiles. We talk about Enneagram here. Some people hate that. Some people love it. I don't really care which one, what you think about it or if you like another profile. These things are ultimately all good, and they're all wrong in certain ways. But they are all helpful in certain ways. And so they can be, oh, here's the thing, though. It can't just be a profile. That's why this is actually last on my list. It can't just be a profile because even when uh, when Sharon and I, we do a uh, Enneagram profile when we uh, sit down with people for premarital counseling. But then we take their profile and we have it open as we listen to them tell their story. Because it can't just be your profile. It has to be your story and your profile and it makes those numbers actually have life left to them. And so if you've done a profile and you said that you are this number or you are this prank finder or you are this disc profile or whatever it is, Ultimately, that's great. It can give you an opening into what you're doing, but you need to take that and then walk through how that has been etched into your soul or your story. That's the point, is to know who you are, not to know what number you are. To know what your strengths and weaknesses are because of that, not to just know these are the behaviors that I might do. It's much more about motivations and behaviors. Don't have time. All right. yeah, I'm already over. We're already at the hour already, so we'll probably only get time to do just one quick song. Ultimately, let me wrap it up like this and remind you. One, it takes a lifetime. This is a lifelong process that I have been working through and I invite you into. Secondly, there is now therefore no condemnation for those who are Christ Jesus. You have the ability to press into these areas and find your weaknesses. Why? Because there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. And there's an invitation into deeper freedom, an invitation into more joy, an invitation to living into your calling more. Not pressure, not, oh wow, if you have to find out, or if you have to admit this, or if you start like, pulling back the hairs and you learn this, or what about, you know, like, what will you find in your soul? It's a beauty, it's already there. It's already affecting your daily life. And you have the freedom to take and to dig into it and sit across with people who love you who can remind you, hey, there's no condemnation for you. This is all in the open cross. And then lastly, as I said, what's the goal of this? Just remind ourselves. It's to seek the wisdom of self-knowledge, to walk with God, reflect with 
build the kingdom, love others well, to be who you are in Christ and what you do with your soldiers. Let's pray. Father God, Lord, you are.